Chapter 14 of Mr. Incool's Misadventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. You can visit my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com. Mr. Incool's Misadventure by Edgar Saltis. Chapter 14. Carl Grows a Mustache. For several days Mr. Incool was much occupied. He left the house early and returned to it late. One afternoon he sent for Carl. Since the return to Paris, the courier's duties had not been arduous. They consisted chiefly in keeping out of the way. On this particular afternoon he was not immediately discoverable, and when at last he presented himself it was in the expectation that the hour of his dismissal had struck. He bowed nevertheless with the best grace in the world, and noticing that his employer's eyes were upon him, gazed deferentially at the carpet. Mr. Incool looked at him in a contemplative way for a moment or two. "'Carl?' he said at last, and Carl raised his eyes. "'Yes, sir?' "'Have you any objections to shaving your whiskers?' "'I, sir? Not the slightest.' "'I will be obliged if you will do so. This afternoon you might go to Cumberland's and be measured. I have left orders there. Then take a room at the Meurice. You have money.' have you not? Very good. Keep an account of your expenditures. In a week I will send you my instructions. That will do for today. An hour later Mr. Incool was watching a game of baccarat at the Cercle des Capuchins. Meanwhile Lennox Lee had given much of his time to the pleasures of Mirette's society. In making her acquaintance at Biarritz he had been actuated partly by the idleness of the moment and partly by the attracting face of celebrity. He had never known a danseuse. Indeed, heretofore, his acquaintance with women had been limited to those of his own monde, and during the succeeding days he hovered about her more that he might add a new photograph to a mental album than with any idea of conquest. She amused him extremely. In her speech she displayed a recklessness of adjective such as he had never witnessed before. It was not that she was brilliant but she possessed that stereotyped form of repartee which is known as bagou, and which the Parisian takes too naturally, and without effort. Moret seemed to have acquired it in its supremest expression. One day, for instance, the curiosity of her circle of admirers was aroused by a young actress who, while painfully plain, squandered coin with remarkable ease. "'Whom do you suppose she gets the money from?' someone asked and Moret, without so much as drawing breath, answered serenely, "'A blind man!' In spite of the bagou, Moret was not a Parisian. She was born in the provinces at Orléans, and was wont to declare herself a lineal descendant of Joan of Arc. She lied with perfect composure. If reproached, she curled her lips. "'Lies whiten the teeth,' she would say, an argument which it was impossible to refute. Under the empire she would have been a success. Under a republic, she complained of the difficulty of making two ends meet. Now Lennox was not rich, but he was an American, and the Americans have assumed in Paris the position which the English once held. Their coffers are considered inexhaustible. On this subject, thanks to Mrs. Mackay, Mr. Incool, the Vanderbilts, the Astors, and a dozen others, there is now no doubt in the mind of the French. To be an American is to be a Vesuvius of gold pieces. As a native of the land of millions, Lennox found that his earliest attentions were received with smiles, and in time when a Russian became so scratched that the tartar was visible, 
Moret welcomed him with undisguised favor. Like many another, Lennox had his small vanities. He would have liked to have thought himself indispensable to Maida's happiness. But in her absence, he did not object to being regarded as the cavalier servant of the first lady of the ballet. Between the two women, the contrast was striking. Moret, as has been hinted, was reckless of adjective. She was animal, imperious, and at times frankly vulgar. Maida was her antithesis. She shrank from coarseness as from a deformity. Both represented love, but they represented the extremes. One was as ignorant of virtue as the other was unconscious of vice. One was Mylitta, the other Psyche. Had the difference been less accentuated, it would have jarred. But the transition was immeasurable. It was like a journey from the fjords of Norway to the jungles of Hindustan. That Psyche was regretted goes without the need of telling, but Mylitta has enchantments which are said to lull regret. In the second week of October, the bathing was still delicious. The waves encircled one in a large, abrupt embrace. Moret would have liked to remain. The beach was a daily triumph for her. There was not a woman in the world who could have held herself in the scantiest of costumes, under the fire of a thousand eyes, as gracefully as she. No sedan chair for her indeed. No hurrying, no running, no enveloping wrap. No pretense or attempt to avoid the scrutiny of the bystanders. There was nothing of this for her. She crossed the entire width of sand, calmly, slowly, in invitation on her lips, and with the walk and majesty of a queen. The amateurs, as usual, were tempted to applaud. It was indeed a triumph, an advertisement to boot, and one which she would have liked to prolong. But she was needed at the opera, and so she returned to Paris, accompanied by Lennox Lee. In Paris it is considered inconvenient for a pretty woman to go about on foot, and as for cabs, where is the self-respecting chorus girl who would consent to be seen in one? Moret was very positive on this point, and Lennox agreed with her thoroughly. He did not, however, for that reason, offer to provide an equipage. Indeed, the wherewithal was lacking. He had spent more money at Bayeritz than he had intended, perhaps ten times the amount that he would have spent at Newport or a Cowes, and his funds were nearly exhausted. As everyone is aware, a banker is the last person in the world to be consulted on the matters of finance. If a client has money in his pocket, a banker can transfer it to his own in an absolutely painless manner. But if the client's pocket is empty, what banker, out of an opera bouffe, was ever willing to fill it? Lennox reflected over this, and was at a loss how to act. The firm on whom his drafts were drawn held nothing on their ledgers to his credit. He visited them immediately on arriving, and was given a letter which for the moment he fancied might contain a remittance. But it bore the Paris postmark, and the address was in Maida's familiar hand. As he looked at it, he forgot his indigence. His heart gave an exultant throb. He had promised himself that when he met her again, matters should go on very much as they had before. And he had further promised himself that so soon as his former footing was re-established, he would give up Moret. He was therefore well pleased when the note was placed in his hands. It had a faint odor of orris, and he opened it as if he were unfolding a lace handkerchief. But from what has gone before, it will be understood that his pleasure was short-lived. The note was brief and categoric. He read it almost at a glance, and when he had possessed himself of the contents, he felt that the determination conveyed was one from which there was no appeal, or rather one from which any appeal would be useless. He looked at the note again. The handwriting suggested an unaccustomed strength, and in the straight, 
firm strokes, he read the irrevocable. It is done, he muttered. I can write fini over that. He looked again at the note and then tore it slowly into minute scraps and watched them flutter from him. He went out to the street, and there his earlier preoccupation returned. It would be a month at least before a draft could be sent, and meanwhile, though he had enough for his personal needs, he had nothing with which to satisfy Moret's caprices. Etel and Yvette sat down. The thought of separating from her did not occur to him, or if it did, it was in that hazy, indistinguishable form in which eventualities sometimes visit the perplexed. If Maida's note had been other, he would have washed his hands of Moret, but now apparently she was the one person on the continent who cared when he came and when he went. In his present position, he was like one who, having sprained an ankle, learns the utility of a crutch. The idea of losing it was not agreeable. Beside, the knowledge that his intimacy with the woman had been envied by grandees with unnumbered hats was to him a source of something that resembled consolation. Presently he reached the boulevard. He was undecided what to do or where to turn, and as he loitered on the curb, the silver head of a stick was waved at him from a passing cab. In a moment the vehicle stopped. May alighted and shook him by the hand. I am on my way to the Capuçon, he explained in his blithesome stutter. There's a big game on. Why not come too? A big game of what? B -b Why, Baccarat, of course. What did you suppose? M marbles? Lennox fumbled in his waistcoat pocket. Yes, I'll go, he said. Five minutes later he was standing in a crowded room before a green table. He had never gambled and hardly knew one card from another, but Baccarat can be learned with such facility that after two deals a raw recruit can argue with a veteran as to whether it is better to stand on five or to draw. Lennox watched the flight of notes, gold and counters. He listened to the monotonous calls. Gendan, Cart, Nif! The end of the table at which he stood seemed to be unlucky. He moved to the other, and presently he leaned over the shoulder of a gamester and put down a few louis. In an hour he left the room with twenty-seven thousand francs. A fraction of it he put in his card case. The rest he handed to Moret. It was not a large sum, but its dimensions were satisfactory to her. C'est petit chat, she said to herself. Je savais bien qu'il ne ferait pas les lapins. And in the large azure note she made precisely one bite. Thereafter, for some weeks, things went on smoothly enough. Moret's mornings were passed at rehearsals, but usually the afternoons were free, and late in the day she would take Lennox to the Cascade, or meet him there and drive back with him to dinner. In the evenings there was the inevitable theater, with supper afterwards at some cabaret a la mode, and sometimes when she was over-fatigued, Lennox would go to the club and try a hand at Baccarat. He was not always so fortunate as on the first day but on the whole his good luck was noticeable. It is possible, however, that he found the excitement enervating. He had been used to a much quieter existence, one that, if not entirely praiseworthy, was still outwardly decorous, and suddenly he had been pitchforked into that narrowest of circles which is called Parisian life. He may have liked it at first, as one is apt to like any novelty, but to nerves that are properly attuned, a little of its viciousness goes a very great way. It may be that it was beginning to exert its usual dissolvent effect. In any event, Lennox, who all his life had preferred water to wine, found absinthe grateful in the morning. 
one afternoon shortly after the initial performance of the new ballet he went from his hotel to the apartment which marette occupied in the rue pierre charon he was informed that she was not at home he questioned the servant as to her whereabouts but the answers he received were vague and unsatisfactory he then drove to the cascade but marette did not appear after dinner he made sure of finding her in this expectation he was again disappointed the next day his success was no better he questioned the servant uselessly madame was not at home she had left no word to each of his questions the answer was invariable it was evident that the servant had been coached and it was equally evident that at least for the moment his companionship was not a prime necessity to the first lady of the ballet as he left the house he bit his lip that Moret should be capricious was quite in the order of things but that she should treat him like the first comer was a different matter when he had last seen her her manner had left nothing to be desired and suddenly without so much as a ppc her door was shut and not shut as it might have been by accident no it was persistently purposely closed presently he reached the champs-elysees it was sunday a stream of carriages flooded the avenue and the sidewalks were thronged with ill-dressed people the crowd increased his annoyance the possibility of being jostled irritated him the spectacle of dawdling shopkeepers filled him with disgust he hailed a cab in which to escape the driver paid no attention he hailed another the result was the same and then in the increasing exasperation of the moment he felt that he hated paris a fat man with pursed lips and an air of imbecile self-satisfaction brushed against him he could have turned and slapped him in the face without however committing any overt act of violence he succeeded in reaching his hotel there he sought the reading room but he found it fully occupied by one middle-aged englishwoman and leaving her in undisturbed possession of the times he went to his own apartment a day or two before he had purchased a copy of a much applauded novel and from it he endeavored to extract a sedative mechanically he turned the pages his eyes glanced over and down them resting at times through fractions of an hour on a single line but the words conveyed no message to his mind his thoughts were elsewhere they surged through vague perplexities and hovered over shadowy enigmas until at last he discovered that he was trying to read in the dark he struck a light and found it was nearly seven i will dress he told himself and dine at the club in half an hour he was on his way to the capuchin the streets were still crowded and the avenue de la opera in which his hotel was situated vibrated as were at the main artery of the capital as he approached the boulevard he thought that it would perhaps be wiser to dine at a restaurant he was discomfited and he was not sure but that the myriad tongue of gossip might not be already busy with the cause of his discomfiture he did not feel talkative and were he taciturn at the club he knew that it would be remarked bignon's was close at hand why not dine there in his indecision he halted before an adjacent shop and stood for a moment looking in the window apparently engrossed by an assortment of strass and imitation pearls the proprietress was lounging in the doorway si monsieur vous entrez she began seductively but he turned from her as he did so a brougham drew up before the curb and marette stepped from it lennox in his surprise at the unexpected did not at first notice that a man had also alighted he moved forward and would have spoken but marette looked him straight in the eyes as who should say allez-vous faire l'enlair mon cher and passed on into the restaurant 
her companion had hurried a little in advance to open the door, and as he swung it aside and Marette entered, Lennox caught a glimpse of his face. It was meaningless enough, and yet not entirely unfamiliar. Who is the cad? he wondered. Yet after all, what difference did it make? He could not blame the man. As for jealousy, the word was meaningless to him. It was his amour propre that suffered. He smiled a trifle grimly to himself and continued his way. At the corner was a large picture shop. An old man wrapped in a loose fur coat stood at the window looking at the painting of a little girl. The child was alone in a coppice and seemingly much frightened at the approach of a flock of does. Unconsciously, Lennox stopped also. He had been so bewildered by the suddenness of the cut that he did not notice whether he was walking or standing still. And so it was for this, he mused, that admittance had been denied him. But why could she not have had the decency to tell him not to come, instead of letting him run there like a tradesman with a small bill? Certainly he had deserved better things of her than that. It was so easy for a woman to break gracefully. A note, a word, and if the man insists a second note, a second word. After that the man, if he is decently bred, can do nothing but raise his hat and speed the parting guest. Beside, why would she want to break with him and take up with a fellow who looked like a barber from the Grand Hotel? Who was he anyway? His eyes rested on the picture of the little girl. The representation of her childish fright almost diverted his thoughts, but all the while there was an undercurrent which in some dim way kept telling him that he had seen the man's face before, and as he groped in his memory the picture of the child faded as might a picture in a magic lantern, and in its place, vaguely at first, and gradually better defined, he saw, standing in the moonlight on a white road, a coach and four. To the rear was the terrace of a hotel and beyond was a shimmering bay like to that which he had seen at San Sebastian. "'My God!' he cried aloud. "'It's in Cool's Courier!' The old man in the fur coat looked at him nervously and shrank away. End of chapter 14 This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. Please check out my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com